You know, every once in a while, you will hear something on the radio that grabs your attention, something different that speaks right to some thoughts that you've had in the back of your mind for a long time. Well, we like to think that this is that show. We're here to shake you up, folks. It's called Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton. That's Bill Schaefer. And, you know, none of us are getting any younger. So what about those things that you've always wanted to do? What happened to the kind of life you always wanted to live? This is the program that proves it is never too late and that no matter what your situation might be, there's always something you can do right now to start growing bolder. And to prove it, over the next hour, you will hear the incredible story of a three-time cancer survivor who is now on the adventure of a lifetime. You'll hear from the last surviving vaudeville comedian, a guy who happens to be 100 years old. Have you heard of J.D. Power and Associates? Well, we're going to meet the guy himself, J.D. Power, and one of the true kings of country rock, an icon, because that's what we call Growing Boulder. Who does not love that? You know, over the past 50 years, he has become a musical icon, a legend who has created hits on the rock, country, pop, and Christian charts. He's won virtually every music industry award there is in multiple genres. And, of course, his signature hit, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, is among the most celebrated songs in the history of American music. But, folks, he is so much more than that. And his latest project is the perfect example of his endless creativity and fearless talent. It's his first new album project since 2007, a new CD at the age of 77 called Off the Grid, Doing It Dylan. Let's find out more as we welcome the great Charlie Daniels. Hey, Charlie, how are you? Hey, buddy. Thanks for talking to me today. Man, it's our pleasure. Thank you so much. You know, you know, it's really an interesting story because Dylan was actually instrumental in your career in the sense that he gave you a boost back in 1969 when you were just an uh, unknown young studio musician in Nashville. How is it that you ended up on his album, Nashville Skyline? It's kind of an odd story. Actually, I, I was supposed to I would do one session. They, they had booked, I think, 15 sessions to do the Nashville Skyline album, and the guitar player that they were going to use was not able to make the first one. He was booked on the first one, so they put me on the first session. It was the only one I was supposed to play. I was supposed to play it and then leave. Uh, when I was packing up at the end of the night, in that session, uh, Bob Dylan asked Bob Johnson, who was a producer, where is Chuddy going? So <laughs> they had you he stay. Said, I don't want another guitar player. I want him. So. And that was the beginning. You know, you know, off the grid, not only a great tribute to Dylan, but a tribute to his reputation for thinking out of the box, uh, because you have definitely done that with this project. What made you decide to put the Charlie Daniels spin on Dylan? What is it about Dylan that you most appreciate? Well, first of all, let me say this is an acoustical album. We've never done an all-acoustical album before, and we had... We did an acoustical song for a TV show, and it, we loved the sound. It, we, it was a whole new sound for us, and so we decided we would do an album of acoustic stuff, and I couldn't think of a better way to go about it than doing a Bob Dylan album. I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. I have, for many years, I think in the back of my mind, kind of harbored a, a intention of maybe doing some Dylan stuff uh, at some time in my career, and I just thought it was the time it had come, so... Uh, we went in and did it. We, we had a great time doing it. It was a fun, fun album. It's fun stuff to do on stage. We're really enjoying it. Yeah, you know, I want to talk to you about having as much fun and maybe more than ever at the age of 77, but let's let's give everybody a little taste of what we're talking about because you've recorded 10 of Dylan's greatest hits, uh, of, of which obviously there are many. Let's take a quick listen to just a few of the cuts. Come gather around, people, wherever you're on, and admit that the waters around you have grown. And accept it that you soon be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving, then you'd better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone. For the times, they are a change. And I was standing on the side of the road, rain falling on my shoes. Heading out for the East Coast, where you know I paid some dues again through. Jingle, jangle, morning, I'll come by. 
How about that, folks? Man, does that music translate to Charlie Daniels' voice and musical style or what? Almost like Charlie Daniels doing Dylan better than Dylan. Uh, Charlie, what was the goal of this project, and how did you decide what songs to include? The goal of the project, basically, was we wanted to do an acoustical album, and I couldn't imagine a better one to do than Dylan. That was part of it. Plus, I wanted to pay tribute to Bob Dylan. He's meant a lot to my career. As far as selecting the songs were concerned, we just tried to pick the ones that we could get our teeth into that we could leave our mark on. I didn't want to do a Dylan album and do it just like Bob did. So when we ran across a song that we could not find an arrangement that was pretty different from the way that he did it, we just bypassed that song and go on to another one so we, we could find something we put our mark on. So we're trying to <clears throat> really what the title says is doing it Dylan, but Joy Daniels fan. Yeah, folks, we are talking to a, a, a living legend, an American musical icon, Charlie Daniels. And, and one of the things we love about you, Charlie, is that this really is an audacious project, a bold, creative, and fearless adventure. And to still be swinging for the fences like you are when you're 77 is very, very cool. What's it like to be 77 and be Charlie Daniels? Well, I mean, it's great as far as I'm concerned. I, <laughs> I would feel to anybody else. But, you know, the thing is to me, uh, we, there's very little we can do about our bodies aging. I mean, we try to take care of them, which I do. But uh, I think your mind, I think keeping your mind occupied with something new, something fresh, something challenging all the time, which I do. i got a bunch of players with me that every one of them are better musicians than I am. And every night when we get on stage, I just have to really scuffle and try to keep up with, with these guys. And it's good for me. It's good for me physically. It's good for me mentally. And I just it's just a great way to live. It's, I, I just thank God I can make a living doing something that I enjoy doing so very much with people that I enjoy doing it with. And I've got all kinds of new projects. I, I told somebody the other day I'd have to live to be 150 to complete all the projects I uh, want to. So. <laughs> folks, do you hear the passion in his voice? Uh, you know, Charlie, I cannot wait till we get to the day when we, we don't really feel compelled or, or even want to mention someone's age, you know. But the fact that you are 77, it's such a great role model, uh, and it's important for people of all ages, even people in their 20s and 30s, to know that even at 77, man, you can still be out there doing your thing, and you can be having as much fun as, as you ever did. When, when you were in that session with Bob Dylan back in 1969, did you ever imagine uh, th- that in this day, that at 77, you would still be as relevant as you are? I never it really even put my mind to much past what was going on on the particular day I was doing it, just trying to get through the day and making it a successful day and then move on, uh, moving on to the next one. That's kind of my philosophy, and it took me a lot of years to get to that point. But I am not much of a procrastinator. I try not to think about it. I make plans for tomorrow, but I can't do anything about it until tomorrow gets here. So I figure if we put too much energy on looking at tomorrow, next year, or the years down the road, that we bypass what we're trying to get done today and don't do a decent job on it. So, no, I really didn't. I just, uh, I had no idea. I mean, if you told me I'd been out here playing music when I was 77, I would have probably thought you were crazy because I was a very young person at the time, and you don't look that far down the road. But uh, I am here to tell anybody that, uh, you know, don't give up on your dreams and start turning some He's become a bit of a philosopher, folks. Where His uh, signal is coming in and out, and there's a reason for that. Charlie Daniels is on a tour bus now somewhere in Canada doing his thing. Charlie, where are you right now? We just got here. We'll rock the folks up here tonight. So. All right. Uh, we're going to leave it right there, Charlie. We're starting to lose the signal, but we're going to play some more uh, of, the, of the music off of your latest album. Folks, he is the great Charlie Daniels, a true American music icon. His latest is called Off the Grid, Doing It Dylan. Do yourself a favor and have a listen. And for more information, you can check it out. You can find out where he's touring at charliedaniels.com. Charlie, thanks so much, and uh, safe travels, buddy. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? Oh, where have you been, my darling young one? I stumbled on the side of twelve misty mountains. I've walked and I've crawled on six crooked highways. I stepped in the middle of seven sad forests. I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans. I've been ten thousand miles in the mouth of a graveyard. It's a high. It's a high. It's a high, it's a high, and it's a hard rain. 
inspirational story of a three-time cancer survivor who set out on the adventure of a lifetime. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps. Taking a walk, making a smoothie, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. And by The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com. Bill Schaefer here with Mark Middleton, and you are listening to Growing Boulder. You know, it's time now for our Surviving and Thriving feature. With the right kind of care and support and the right attitude, it's possible not only to survive life's greatest challenges, but to thrive in its aftermath. You know, sometimes Growing Boulder means living your dream, but in many cases... It also has to do with overcoming obstacles, facing up to challenges, and making the best we can out of the unexpected. In fact, if there's anything out there we all have in common, it's that at some point or another, we're all going to come face to face with the unexpected, the unforeseen, something shocking, something out of the blue, something that instantly changes life as we know it. Yeah, and for a guy by the name of John Casterline, his life had actually been a pretty good adventure. He had just decided to retire. He was looking forward, as we all do, to a whole new life. He was about to get that new life only it wouldn't be the one that he had expected. What John got was one of the biggest jolts that anyone could ever face. In an instant, everything that he had hoped for and planned for went right out the window. But what he did about it, the way he faced up to it, is the very definition of surviving and thriving. John Casterline couldn't wait to retire. He was looking forward to a whole new adventure. He had no idea everything was about to change. I retired July 31st, and that was 2006. And one week later, I was told that I had stage 4 lung cancer. One week. One week later. Surely, he thought, it couldn't be that bad. He'd always taken pretty good care of himself and was optimistic, until he went online and did some research. And that's when it hit. And that's when I went, wow, this is serious. You thought you were a goner. I just, I just thought I was a goner. The statistics are devastating. Chances of surviving the next few months would be 50-50 at best, and only 1 in 10 make it 5 years. John went into depression. And it wasn't until my older boy came to town a couple days later, and he saw me in this despondent mode, and he said, this is so not you. He said, you're such a positive person. I can't believe I'm seeing what I'm seeing. And that was the little kick that I needed that changed my life after that. From that point forward... I fought this cancer with everything that I had. Treatment wouldn't be easy, but John had made that vow to fight. When I had radiation, I never stopped walking, not one day. Every single day, and it was so important to me to do this, I went out and walked. I was a zombie from days two to six after chemotherapy, and that's the only way I can describe it. But my boy or my wife and the family support I had, I would take so many steps every day. I'd go outside that house. I was in slow motion during that time, but it was so important to me to never stop walking, just keep going. 
and those walks gave him an idea, a goal to strive for. He would hike the Pacific Crest 2,600 miles from Mexico to Canada to raise money and create awareness. But before he could start, lightning struck again. John was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and then again, throat cancer. Casterline fought three separate battles against three different cancers, and then still decided to hit the trail. John hiked for a thousand miles, but complications forced him to stop. The Pacific Crest Trail I knew was going to be a challenge for me, and it has been a challenge for me. But my goal is I will finish it. I will definitely finish that hike. At the age of 70, after three different battles, John takes nothing for granted. His strength of character, compassion for others, and can-do attitude prove that no matter what you face, there is always hope. So when a guy's had three cancers, do you wake up every day terrified that today's going to be number four? I don't wake up terrified, but there's not a day goes by that I don't think about my cancer every day, several times a day. At times I get overconfident. I think, geez, I'm invincible. I've been through this. And I mean, that thought will cross my mind and I'll say, God, stop that. Don't think that way. Because tomorrow you could find out that something's there. But I'll say it doesn't, it doesn't rule me. I still do everything I want to do. And I just live my life and I'm going to live my life and continue on like that. You know, obviously, we never want people to have to go through, you know, those kinds of trauma. But as Bill mentioned uh, in the intro to that story, it's all going to happen to us sooner or later. And we are so grateful for people like John Casterline who are willing to share with us their story. Because, you know, when they do tell that story, we all realize that no matter what might happen in our own lives, we're never alone. There is strength in hearing how courageously other people battle. Uh, and, And yes, there is also hope. And when you discover that John faced not only his challenge, but his three challenges simply by being realistic optimistic and willing to fight for his own survivor survival, it should give us all hope that regardless of the ultimate outcome, it is possible to live lives of adventure, purpose, and meaning, even, Bill, in the face of really the most daunting adversity. It's a huge point, Mark, because it's not like, you know, sometimes you hear survivors tell their stories, and it sounds like it was almost predestined. I mean, this guy was terrified. He thought it was over just like anybody else. And and it's not to say the people who don't survive didn't have the spirit. It's just that when you are faced with a challenge, you have no choice. You either step up and try to fight it, just kind of fade away. And Casterline did an amazing job of stepping up. And there's something about strength and courage. Not only do they help you in your own personal situation, but they inspire countless others along the way. You know, we were talking to his doctor, and he told us that John inspired her in ways that even surprised her. She said other patients in the chemo room, when he would come in, would perk up and stand a little taller whenever John was around. And when you think of it, We all have our own journey to travel in this life, and we may just be a collection of individuals, but when we link together to help each other along the way, incredible, powerful, unforgettable things can happen. Remember, ultimately, it's not about the outcome, but how we face up to the cards we're dealt that defines who we are. And that's what surviving and thriving is all about. Let's face it, the lives we lead these days are so busy, so full of pressure and stress that it's very rare that we have the chance to sit back, to think about where we've been and have a clear vision of where we need to be. Yeah, enter Key Howard because he's a guy who has been around the block a time or two and has some things to say to remind us of what really is important in our lives. You know, some people actually call this guy the next Paul Harvey, and pretty much it's true. He's here again to offer a bit of wit and wisdom that he hopes will make you stop and think, just as he does, ain't life grand. Today I'd like to talk to you about faith. I personally think that we've got to have faith in everything we do. Faith in our religious convictions, faith in our government, faith in organizations we belong to, and faith in ourselves. We mustn't be like the guy that fell off the side of a cliff and was hanging for dear life from a limb that was sticking out of the side of the hill. He called up, Is there anybody up there? A voice answered, Yes. The man asked, Who are you? The voice answered, I am the Lord. The man said, Can you help me, Lord? The voice said, Yes. Do you believe in me? The man said, Yes, I do. The voice said, Do you trust me? The man said, Yes, I do. 
The voice said, do you believe and have faith in me, and will you do as I say? Yes, yes, cried the man. Then let loose of the bush, said the Lord. The man thought for a minute, then he said, is there anybody else up there I could talk to? You know, I think there's a lot of people in our country who are like that man hanging from a limb. They don't have enough faith in God or their fellow man. Just remember, always believe in yourself and always have faith that you can help your fellow man and you'll always come out a winner. I guarantee it. Until next time, this is Key Howard. Ain't life grand. Up next, a woman who took a special 10-mile challenge and how it totally changed the way she approaches life. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. You're listening to Mark Middleton's Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer. Mark's right over there. When it comes right down to it, folks, out of the many things we do and that we value in life, there are two that stand high above the rest. You know what they are? One of them is what we put in our mouths, our food. And the other is what we put in our wallets, our money. Our next guest is a self-proclaimed tightwad with her money and a yo-yo dieter with her food. So where are we going with this? Can I add a third, Bill? Go for it's it. what we put in our minds is the third oh, most important thing. we're going to get. We're going to get to that right now because she also <laughs> happens to be a renowned innovator. She's a speaker and a writer, the author of a best-selling book, Your Money or Your Life. Money is, without a doubt, one of her favorite topics, but something else moved front and center when she was issued a special challenge. She became fascinated by the concept of sustainable living, even wrote a book about it called Blessing the Hand that feed us, what eating closer to home can teach us about food, community, and our place on earth, a fascinating topic. Let's find out more why she believes sustainable living is such a big deal as we say hello to Vicki Robin. Hey, Vicki, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. Uh, let's jump right in because we alluded to uh, this challenge. Tell us about the 10-mile challenge. Yeah, so in uh, July of 2010, a friend of mine who's a market gardener who sells her vegetables in the farmer's market, she had watched a video about this Morgan Spurlock supersize me idea, 30-day experiment to test something out. And so she wanted to test out whether she could feed somebody for 30 days. And almost everybody she talked to about it said, no, I can't do that because I can't live without my, you know, and then the list went on and on and on. But I, you know, as, I, as you said in the intro, having done every diet in the world and really having been quite confused about, you know, really what should I put in my mouth, and also having a real concern about the state of our food system. Most communities, even the most conscious ones, only produce maybe 5% of food locally. You know, we're very, very dependent on an industrial system, which is very fossil fuel dependent, which is a limited resource that we have built our civilization on. So I have this sustainability mind, and I have this sort of all check out any diet in the world mind. So when she asked me, I said, sure. So we actually set it up that not just that it would be she feeding me, because she didn't have any protein, but that we could draw a circle that included my house and her farm. Uh, it turned out to be a 10-mile circle, and I could go hunting for sources, other sources of food in those 10 miles where I found eggs and cheese and meat and honey and whatever I could find, really. Uh, and so in September 2010, we started this 10-mile diet to see what would happen. Well, Vicki, you know, it's, it sounds hard, and we're creatures of easy. You know, you go run down to the big box supermarket, and it's all there right in front of us. We don't know half the time what we're taking anyway, but it's easy, and we do it. How do you make yourself go through the trouble of having to hunt it down yourself? Well, I consider sustainability an extreme sport. I mean, I do this, I do, I do values and ethics for fun. I really like these dilemmas where, you know, 
personally, I'd like to do it one way, but actually what I believe is true is something else. So I like to test it out, and it was only 30 days. So I knew that at the end of that time, I could really go back to all my comfort foods. Um, and so it was. I approached it like somebody would approach doing a marathon, really. You know, it's no fun to get up in the morning and, and run six, eight miles, um, but people do it because they care about something and they want to test themselves. And so what happened, though, the byproduct of this that, it, that surprised me, I didn't know it would happen, is I actually developed a sense of myself as what I call a relational eater, that I used to be an anything, anytime, anywhere, run down the supermarket eater, really unconcerned about the sources of my food and mostly focused on frugality, you know, getting bargains and deals, to being a local relational eater where I... I I really transformed my relationship for everything from my food ethics about what what foods I'll buy from afar, and and I met all my farmers in my ten mile circle, of course, because I was looking for food, and I fell in love with them because they were feeding me, and I knew that without their success, I would not be successful. And something happened to me, which I call a sense of belonging. Relational eating is. Is, is eating as an act of belonging and eating as an act of being a living person in a living world rather than a, a consumer in a, um, in a world where, you know, the supermarket is the mediator of what you have. So it gave me a sense of competency that I could do this. I renewed my capacity to cook, which I hadn't been really thinking much about cooking. Um, I became much more appreciative of you know, my sort of lame garden that I maintain. Um, and I actually, I broke the back of my hyperfrugality. You called me a tightwad. Because I realized that our food is kept unnaturally cheap by the industrial system. There's all sorts of ways that the playing field is skewed. And if you want really good food grown really well in really good soil that, you know, doesn't have pesticides and herbicides and, you know, all those other sides, you know, side means you're going to, you know, it's like suicide or fratricide. <laughs> it's like you're going to kill everything other than what you want. So, so if you want food that's, that's healthy, whole, natural, um, it's going to cost you more. And, of course, you know, your farmer isn't just a dirt farmer. Your farmer is like your doctor. Your farmer is a professional in feeding you. And so, of course, you'd want to pay your professional, who keeps your body healthy, a little bit extra. So we don't think about this in our society, and we've actually been trained to not think about it. We've been trained to think that food should be easy and cheap. We spend the lowest percentage of our budget of any country in the world on food. We produce 2,700 calories per day per person, so that is overproduction. And so we have to, because it's a corporate-controlled food system, we have to figure out ways to get those calories into human beings. And you see the result in the obesity or overweight or whatever you want to call it, not blaming the victim, but just saying we're in a system that profits from us overeating. All of this is invisible to us. And then we, we, we consider it an individual problem. I don't have any control over my eating. No, no, no. Everywhere you go, there's food ads, you know. You can't get away from them. Everywhere you go, you're being encouraged to eat more, eat more, eat more. So this local relational eating, this being a living being in a living world, respecting food, respecting your body, you know, respecting the talents of your farmers, this is a real shift. And no, it's not easy, and no, it's not cheap. But the benefits... If anybody just do the 30-day experiment, just do a one-week experiment, I don't care, but just set yourself some goal, commit to one food or one farmer or one meal a week or one month in a year or whatever you want to do, commit to that because you want that benefit of relational eating and see what happens. Obviously, folks, a very intelligent woman, a fascinating topic, and we need more people like you. And please don't take this the wrong way, Vicki. It's got to be tough to be you. Are, 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 you uh, are you somewhat neurotic? Do you think about things so much so that, that it's hard to just relax? I, I also do, um, I do freeform dance. I sing in a choir. I bicycle. <laughs> I have friends that I hang out with. I, I I am committed to having a balanced life. But, you know, yeah, I'm smart, 
and I think about things. And no, I'm not going to put myself down a blind alley called, I can't do what I want. I eat ice cream. I (laughs) I eat what I want. But what's happened is like anything you do for, you know, three or four weeks, you develop, you know, a habit of it. So I really like eating local food. I like eating food grown by people I know. I like looking at my plate and thinking, oh, those are Georgie's beans, and that's Georgina's grain, and, oh, that's Chris's kale. <laughs> you know, that feels friendly to me. And the message is we can all make the changes to move towards that as well. The book's called Blessing the Hands That Feed Us, our thanks to the entertaining Vicki Robin. Up next, we'll visit with the last living vaudevillian. He's 100 years old and has lived a century of laughs. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. I'm Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer, and this, of course, is Growing Boulder. And we're about to meet a guy who has lived a great life and a very long one as well. Someone who has taken chances, fought for his opportunities, and spent his days doing what he loves best, which is making people laugh. And what an awesome life. You know, he is the last survivor of the most incredible era in showbiz, the days of vaudeville. He made appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He played roles in theater productions. But now he's featured in a multi-award-winning documentary called The Last First Comic, How Burlesque Died and Irving Benson Lived to Tell About It. So let's say hi to 100-year-old Irv Benson. Irv, you're 100. Uh, I'm a hundred. My one of my granddaughters bought me a T-shirt for my birthday and said, "Holy crap! I'm really a <laughs> hundred. How does it feel to be a one hundred? Did you ever aspire to be a centenarian? Uh, no, no, not really. You know, uh, it's a it's a funny thing, but uh, it's too long to go into about part of my family that died in there. My mother in her forties. My father in his 60s and a sister at 34. And my brothers and I lived to be in our 90s. My brother died last week, my only remaining brother, at 102. Mm, that's well, Irv, that's incredible. Well, we're, we hope you're here forever because you are such a ball of energy. You know, you're well, fun to be well, around. Thank you, Bill. But, and, and gosh, just ama- I can't even imagine what the burlesque circuit was like. It could not have been an easy way to make a living. I tell you, it, it it was a little rough in those days. But, you know, you learned. I learned my trade. I started when I was 13 as a dancer. And uh, now today, it's ironic, but I, I can't walk. My legs are gone. You know, otherwise, I'm in pretty good shape for a 100-year-old guy. Man, I would say you're in great shape. You know, we we love to talk to people like you who are great role models for all of us that we still can have a quality of life uh, even beyond 100. How did burlesque die, and, and how did you live to tell about it, Irv? Yeah, it's a... Uh, it's, uh, it's it's very gratifying to know that you were part of that era and and watched and saw people come out people with no talent grew up to be stars which is a wonderful thing you know what i mean and um as for me i never became a star i made a good living you know but uh, <clears throat> i never reached a pinnacle of uh uh, the Johnny Carsons or the Red Skeltons or people like that, you know. But uh, I'm satisfied with what I did. Irv, do you know a guy named uh, Sidney Spritzer? Do I know him? Yeah. Where'd you get that name? Well, I don't know. I was just wondering if he was a buddy of yours or not. You know who Sidney Spritzer is? I do know who Sidney Spritzer is. Who? 
He was one of the funniest guys. This is a guy who used to come on and heckle Milton Berle all the time. If only you, you could be. On? If only you could be as funny as him. Are you putting me on? <laughs> Irving, of course, was Sidney Spritzer, and Irv, we're going to let you listen to a clip from you That's and me. that was me, Sidney Spritzer. Yeah, yeah, we're going to listen to a clip right now, Irv. Let's listen to you giving it to Milton Berle on one of his shows. Oh no! Oh no! It's you again. Hold it, pal. Hold it. Hold it. Sidney Spritzer from last week. Why are you applauding? I didn't say anything. That's why I'm applauding. <laughs> All right, never mind. Now, would you please keep quiet so I can go on with the show? Hey, hey, Burl. Yeah? I want to see that star on your show tonight. Which one? You know, the one with the mask. Batman or the Green Hornet? No, Phyllis Diller. <laughs> Phyllis Diller was just on and she doesn't wear a mask. That's what I want to see her about. <laughs> All right, now, would you do me a favor? I'm not going to put up with you anymore. Put up with you last week. I have a show to do and let me do it. Now, if you don't, if you don't go home, I'm going to call the police. I don't blame you. You need all the protection you can get. <laughs> Irving, you were hilarious. Oh, thank you. And, and the shows you were on were hilarious. What, what do you think of those shows, and what made your era so special? You worked with Burl. I, for... I think they were wonderful, Bill. We had seven writers. <laughs> Excuse me. We had seven writers. I'm having a little trouble. I'm just coming off a bad chest cold, you know, and it's a little difficult for me to talk, but I'm trying. I'm doing the best I can. Can you hear me? You sound great, Irv, to us. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, but those, um, we had seven writers on, on the show, used to write that spot, and they, they were just wonderful. There were so many great stories, too long to tell on a radio broadcast, but they were so good and so funny that happened to people and writers, and what happened to P- to Milton when he signed, he, well, he was the first one, he signed a, uh, uh, a contract for... Uh, Oh, I don't know how many million for th- in those days uh, for, for 30 years. And that's um, that's how we happened to do the last Burl show. He had to go to NBC and make a deal because he was getting all kinds of offers to do another variety show. And um, they made a deal where he they cut the money that, he, that was coming to him. I don't know what the cut was, but um, that gave him an opportunity to do the... Uh, Thing, and we were on the ABC network, and uh, it worked out just fine. Irving, you're listening to some music in the background? Yes. Yeah, that, that, that's wonderful. Folks, he's Irving, um, the 100-year-old, the last living comic, Irving Benson. Irv, what's it like to be 100? Is there anything funny about being 100 years old? Oh, it's, uh, uh, you know, the alternative. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not 100, then... Uh, you know where you're going, don't you? Or where you went. Yeah, no no good jokes about being 100? Mm, <laughs> no, not really. Hey, did, Irv, did you have a special sign-off in the vaudeville days? Do you remember any special way that you would end your shows? Oh, my partner and I, we... Um, well, I hate to talk about those things, but... Uh, the man that booked the Paramount Theaters in those days, uh, he said that Benson and Mann are the best comedy act around today, you know. And there was a lot of good comedy duos around. I think we were the only, you know, the Apollo Theater in Harlem? Yeah. Yeah, it's all black, you know, all black um, entertainers. And I think my partner Jack and I were the only two white comedy act, two two man white comedy act ever played there. You know, and that is why, Irving, we love you, and we also love you because of your energy, your passion, and your memory from those beautiful, beautiful, glorious days. He is the last surviving vaudeville comedian. What a delight to spend a few minutes visiting with this fantastic 100-year-old man, Mr. Irv Benson. Check him out in the documentary, The Last First Comic. And, Irv, would you come back with us on the show sometime soon, too? I'd love to. We'd love to have you, sir. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you soon. Up next, when it comes to customer satisfaction, J.D. Power says growing bolder is at the top. 
Is that true? We'll ask the real J.D. Power right after this. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps, like a daily walk, making smoothies, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. You're listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and our next guest never owned a car dealership. Never designed an auto, never even sold a single car, but he has had as much of an impact on the auto industry as anyone over the last 50 years. Yeah, what he did, Bill, not only revolutionized the entire auto industry, but nearly every industry in the world would eventually take note of market research. Uh, uh, did I say power? Well, that's a word that is now synonymous with fair and honest market research into what's right and what's wrong about the cars we drive. You've heard the name of our next guest many, many times, but that's probably as far as it goes until now. We're excited to say hello to the author of the book, Power, how J.D. Power III became the auto industry's advisor, confessor, and eyewitness to history. Say hello to the man himself, Mr. J.D. Power. His friends call him Dave, Mr. Dave Power. Hey, Dave, how are you? Fine, thank you. Man, you are Glad pre- to be here. You know, thank you so much for what you've done over the decades. You, you have become literally a legend, a powerful voice of truth, fairness, and integrity over a business that hasn't always been that way. How did you get started doing what you do? I took uh, a lot of uh, education in Detroit uh, when I uh, got out of graduate school. I went to work for Ford Motor Company for a couple of years and then moved over to uh, uh, McCann Erickson, which... uh, had just won the Buick and GMC account and did market research. Uh, that's uh, where I honed my uh, knowledge and uh, my uh, ideas of the way the research should be done. I left uh, Detroit to get out of the automobile business and get more exposure in different other industries. And I ended up in Los Angeles And one night, uh, I had dinner with a classmate of mine, and he had just uh, quit his job, and uh, they were starting a new business. I went home and told my wife about it, and uh, she said, well, why don't we do that? (laughs) And so that's how we got started. And uh, she uh, did the work on the kitchen table, uh, and... uh, We had uh, three children, a fourth one on the way, and we put them to work folding the questionnaires and the stuffing the envelopes and putting a quarter on the the, uh, incentive of fresh quarter uh, in with it. And we were running uh, a whole series of studies using child labor. (laughs) And it worked out very well. And all my children uh, eventually uh, got uh, full-time jobs with uh, the company and uh, helped us uh, continue on. We're talking with J.D. Dave Power and uh, J.D. Power and Associates. Your research really did shape the industry. It forced greater accountability than ever. But I'm guessing the car companies probably didn't like you very much. No, they didn't. Uh, In uh, those days, this is back in uh, the late 60s, and I uh, found that uh, what they, uh, the way market research was done was the same way advertising was done. If you work for one car company, you couldn't work for any others. And uh, they, you were a uh, really a uh, 
directed by them as to the way you do the market research. And I felt that uh, they weren't getting the real information. They were getting information that they wanted to hear or they'd have the results and it, they would massage it until it agreed with their thinking. And so the big change that we brought about was we did independent surveys, we funded the surveys, and then made the information available across the industry. And that gave us independence. And uh, we put that together with our integrity, and we had a big impact on the industry as a result of that. Obviously, the right guy, the right company, the right business model at the right time. Part of the title of your book uh, uh, is Eyewitness to History. Over the decades, what would you say, Dave, are, are, is the most significant change in the auto industry, the most historical? Anything pop out? Well, the most uh, important thing is to understand that back in uh, the early days uh, of my uh, career, uh, back in the 50s and 60s, uh, the big industry, the GM, Fords, and Chryslers, ruled the rules, and they determined uh, what cars were to be built and how they were to be built. And uh, it would, took quite a bit of time, but eventually uh, uh, getting the right kind of information up to the top management was our goal, and that's how we worked on it. And uh, I think uh, uh, it was a tough time uh, for about 20, maybe 30 years uh, of having to put up with uh, 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 all the complaints that they had about the work we were doing. And now you're you're in your 80s these days, is that right? Yes. And are you happy with where the auto industry has has gone? Oh yes. Now, uh, and I really to finish it off, the change that's happened is today the consumer is in charge. Nobody else is in charge. The consumer is uh, the ones determining what kind of cars are going to be built. And I think that uh, this is great for the industry, and it's only happened here in the United States and North America, and that was because of the open information on the car owner's uh, registered uh, vehicles that we were able to get to the consumers themselves and uh, report back what they had to say about the car they were driving. You know, it sounds now like such an obvious idea and and such a smart thing to do, but it wasn't until one guy with an idea stood up and decided to make it happen himself. He took risks, but he built something that benefited everybody and made a huge difference. You should check out the book. It's called Power by James David Power III, and we'd like to thank J.D. Power not just for being our guest, but for having our backs for the last 50 years. Thank you, Dave. I want to take a moment now to make something very clear. Growing bolder is a way to describe anyone who's living a life of intent, someone who's not just going through the motions, anyone who wants to grow, to expand their horizons and make a difference. You can be 20 years old and grow bolder, or 40 or 60. The point is now is the time to start living life to the fullest. Now, this is the end of the program, but it's just the beginning of the process. There are hundreds more stories and interviews at our website, growingbolder.com. Yeah, a fabulous community of support. And when you're there, you'll also find more out about uh, Growing Boulder TV. You can subscribe to our magazine, Growing Boulder Magazine. So check out growingbolder.com and see what a difference it makes to surround yourself with encouragement instead of negativity, because that is also what we call Growing Boulder. We'll see you next time. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. 
all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at Growing Boulders Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Director of technology is Joshua Doolittle. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, flowing high and mighty trap. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Oh